Hello, beautiful tribe. This podcast is sponsored by Uvita. Thousands of years ago, before modern medicine proved scientific evidence for mind and body connection, the sages of India developed Ayurveda, which continues to be one of the most sophisticated, powerful mind and body health systems up to date. And I can begin to tell you, tribe, that it's about putting the power back in your hands. And the company that's helping you do that is Uvita. I've been on Uvita for a couple months now so that I can have a healthy gut and be able to clear my gut and be able to have the best digestive system that I can have. Because healing your gut allows the body to build a stronger immune system and produce the right kind of bacteria that tells your brain that it's okay to feel good. And as, as everyone knows, I'm the shaman who likes to stay lit and make sure the tribe is lit all day long. And so it's important for us to feel good in our bodies. And it's important for us to live a very healthy life. Uvita is a company that is doing that. They are utilizing the knowledge and understanding of Ayurveda in their company, wild harvested and organically grown herbs that they synergistically create in an Ayurvedic way to be able to give you what you need for your body to sustain health, wellness, and vitality. Everything that they have in their company is based in integrity, ethically sourced from natives who practice sustainability. And I can't begin to tell you how happy I am to share this with you and to have them be one of the sponsors for Ancient Wisdom Today podcast. Their products offer everything from immunity to healthy joints and to healthy mood and healthy digestion and a healthy body. What more can you ask for from a company that is bringing Ayurvedic understanding to the Western world in a way that is supporting us and lifting us and shifting us into the greater possibilities of who we are? So I welcome you to experience Uvita. You can even contact them by going to their website, which is www.uvita.com. And you make your first order, type in the word shaman, which is their code for the Ancient Wisdom Today podcast tribe. And you will get 35% off on your order for your first order of Uvita. But I'm telling you, the moment you start taking this product, you're going to see dramatic change in your body and the way you feel. And that is the best. And as the tribe knows, I'm all about putting the power back in your hands. So go ahead and check out Uvita and use my code SHAMAN. And until then, live healthy always and every day in your life. Love you. Human beings have been sharing stories for hundreds of thousands of years. And with those stories came the emotional, spiritual, and physical knowledge of the ancients. Shaman Durek is a third-generation shaman, an evolutionary innovator, and a women's empowerment leader. He's here to bring forth the ancient wisdom of our elders to help heal and bring happiness into our modern society. We're sharing ancient knowledge in modern times in order to put the power back in people's hands. Welcome to the tribe. Hello, beautiful tribe. Oh, so powerful, amazing, beautiful souls who offer so much love to the world. And I love how you're always thinking about how we can make this planet better and how we can support each other and how we can lift each other and shift each other into higher possibilities. And I love how you're always thinking about how do I nurture myself so that I can nurture others? Because it is so important right now at this day and age for us to nurture ourselves more and really make a connection with every human being we come across, be it the person who's driving you in the Uber or the person you're talking to at the grocery store or anyone you're standing next to, just 
start a conversation, connect with them, because that's how we build our tribe. And that's how we build this family of love to carry us into the ways that we need to be in order to create a greater planet for ourselves here on planet Earth as well as interfacing and understanding the possibility of change occurs with you by you making that ability to step forth, acknowledge that power in you, to say hello, to acknowledge someone, to just start a conversation, find out where people are, get to know people and get out of that bubble, out of that shell, because you have the power to do that. And I love that about you. And what I love about you the most is that you love and care about everyone and not just everyone, but the planet and everything you put into your body, you think about it and you know, is this right for me to nourish myself and give myself sustenance? And that is what it's about. So Tribe, I love you so much. And I'm so happy you're here today on Ancient Wisdom. And I'm so, so, so proud of all of you and all the beautiful messages that I've been getting from all over the world of how your lives have been changing and growing. But let me tell you something. I have a show for you. So you really have to get your notepads out, you're probably going to listen to this more than once. I'm sure of it because I have the most amazing friend on the show today. And let me just tell you, okay, not only is he an environmentalist, he is a powerful and amazing person who has brought forth knowledge and information to the world that is here to help us to understand how to sustain life, how to sustain our ability to live on this planet and how to give us the ability to tools and the knowledge to be able to be empowered within ourselves to make that change. And when you're stepping into that position that he does, where he's going and he's meeting with world leaders and he's meeting with all these different industries, it's really about bringing the knowledge and the education. Because in truth, you can't really tell someone what to do, but you can educate them. And one of the reasons why I wanted him on my show today for all of us in the tribe is because... It is important for us to enrich our lives with rich knowledge to be able to change and to bring the energy and the vibrancy that we need in ourselves, both in our minds and our modus operandi and in the cornice nebulous of our mind to reach forth into ourselves and recognize the power that we have to really be a voice for change, a hand for change, and live in the service of ourselves and the species and everything that we're doing here on earth. And so I am so happy to have Paul Hawken on our show. Hello, Paul. Oh. Hi. <laughs> I was so taken by with the introduction that I choked on my first high. I was like overwhelmed. Jesus. I'm really happy to have you here. One of the things that I want you to share with people, and I want you to tell us about, you know, your research and what you've been doing to really support, like raising this awareness and the things that you found in your research. Drawdown is a book that came out of an organization called Project Drawdown. And Project Drawdown is a small uh, NGO nonprofit. And we started four years ago, just a small group of people who were looking at the climate movement and, and what I call the climate establishment and just looking at how that message was or really was not getting across. And uh, looking at the language, but also looking at the, the, the idea that somehow solutions came from guilt, from fear, from threat, from doom, that the communication was about if you don't do something, something bad is going to happen. Now, I wouldn't argue that on the science level. I think that's good science. But I would argue that against the communication level. And what we found was that on the problem level, there's extraordinary data, extraordinary science, two and a half billion data points behind the fifth assessment of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. 
And what we set out to do, though, was do something very different because with every problem is the possibility. And if you keep talking about problems, it actually sort of turns people off. And what we wanted to know was what were the 100 most substantive solutions, not to climate change, but to reversing global warming. And we feel that the goal hasn't been named. Like what we hear about climate change is we're going to mitigate it or we're going to curb it or, you know, we're going to go to carbon neutral. That's what I mean. That's what everyone is talking about. Everybody's talking about, you know, and I'm going, well, you know, emissions now uh, in greenhouse gases, counting all greenhouse gases, not just CO2, we're at 492 ppm in the atmosphere, not 410, which is what we hear. Uh, And that's the highest in 20 million years. And some Somehow we've got this idea that we should curb that or, you know, fight that or battle that or mitigate that. A very strange concept when you think that the only thing that makes sense when you're going towards a cliff is to stop and turn around. It doesn't make sense to slow down as you go over the cliff. <laughs> and that's essentially what that language is saying to us. And so, 100%. So we wanted to know what were the solutions that we have at hand. In other words, not solutions that could be, should be, ought to be, if only solutions, but we want to map, measure, and model the 100 most substantive solutions to reversing global warming. And uh, to do that, we collected a, uh, 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 we created a collaboration from people all over the world, Drawdown Research Fellows, uh, scientists, advisors, uh, outside experts, scientific reviewers of our model, 220 plus people. And over three and a half years, uh, we did exactly that, you know, which is we map, measure, and model the top solutions that exist right now. And what we did was scale them. Every one of them is growing right now. Every one of these solutions is scaling, but we continue to scale them for 30 years to see what would happen in 2050, from 2020 to 2050. Could we achieve drawdown, which is that point in time when greenhouse gases peak and go down on a year-to-year basis. It's the point where we stop and turn around and go the other way. Because carbon neutral, zero, you know, carbon zero, that means we just stop at a very bad place at the highest level of greenhouse gases in 20 million years. That's not a great idea. And so we wanted to really to see whether we could or could not actually uh, achieve that. We want to determine based on peer-reviewed science and the best economic data available. So we did two things. We measured the, the carbon or CO2 equivalent uh, impact of a solution. There's only two things you can do. You can either avoid emissions, you can stop putting greenhouse gases up there, or you can bring them back home. And that's called sequestration through photosynthesis, through forests and grasslands and crops. I mean, and, that's the best measuring. I mean, that's the best measuring for, you know, being able to figure that out. How did you go about doing that? Well, on the on the carbon level, on the greenhouse gas level, we only use peer-reviewed science. And when there was a diver- divergence in science, we used the median, the low median. We, we chose the middle, you know, we didn't choose the high number. And on, we also measured the economic impact, what would it cost and what would be the savings if we did that instead of business as usual. And uh, for that, we only used the International Energy Agency and the World Bank and the FAO and IPCC and Bluebrick Energy. So we did not None of the data, the 5 million data points in our project drawdown book and model uh, drawdown um, is our data. We actually are a mirror to the world of what it knows and what it is doing. 
is a very different picture than the one we get, which is things are bad and getting worse. And don't you feel bad about it? If you don't, then you're not really understanding the science. That's kind of the communication. And that communication turns people off. It's not that the problem isn't correct. It is. The definition is the science is good. But the fact is that people don't really respond to a litany of problems. They respond to possibility. And what you see in Drawdown in these solutions is possibility. And uh, uh, except for two of them, 98 out of those 100 solutions are things we want to do, are doing, by the way, but would want to do uh, if there wasn't the climate scientists alive. If we had no idea what was causing extreme weather, we would still want to do them because of the benefits they have for our children, for pure air, for water, for health, and well-being, for education. Yeah. And, and this is what we don't understand. We've been told somehow that you know to solve it, we have to do this over here somewhere when we could just be having a regular economy doing its thing. And what we see and what we saw is it's the other way around, actually. The way to ensure prosperity, the way to really create full employment, the way to transform our societies to address the myriad social issues that have come out of the way we treat people uh, through our economic systems can be addressed through these solutions. And isn't isn't the um, understanding, because in shamanism, we have this understanding that when you're dealing like with people in the tribe and people who are, you know, indigenous to, to their lands and so forth, they understand their land. They understand how to take care of their land, their land. They understand, you know, what is happening because they've been living in it and they've been experiencing it. But when you're dealing with a conglomerate of all of these, you know, different situations in the world from different countries, you know, in different ways that people live their lives, you're dealing with this onslaught of people who are just kind of really not operating in this awareness that, you know, at wherever I dwell, wherever I am, it's my, you know, I should be taking care of that environment. I should be supporting that environment. But instead, people kind of just migrate somewhere, live there and just utilize whatever resources they want. And so because they're, they're not acknowledging of the resources that they're actually utilizing, do you feel like a lot of the reasons why we have these these high levels is because people are not aware or bringing awareness to what they're actually utilizing, what they're actually, you know, taking from the earth, what they're, you know, wasting all of these different factors, you know, because I look at that a lot, you know, just in, in just in like small areas where if I'm in a city or if I'm, you know, just dealing with people in like LA or if I'm in New York or wherever I am in the world, I notice that people don't have this awareness yet. Then I say yet, because I know it's, it's something that we can, um, we can overcome, but this awareness of, how do I how do I adapt in a place and also be a part of making sure that that place is adaptable? Absolutely. I mean, the average American can identify a thousand logos, but can't name six native plants or six native birds to their place where they live. In other words, they, that's brilliant. They don't know. <laughs> we don't know where we live. We literally don't know where we live. We know our address or zip code. You know, we can find it on a map with GPS, etc. But we actually don't know where we live because we've never been educated or educated ourselves. And uh, traditional cultures knew exactly where they lived. They knew it intimately. And not only that, within their education, 
old system, which is really their language. Their language was their education. It wasn't like we have language and then we have school over here. The words themselves, you know, how we could, really it's called local science was embedded in the verbs, embedded in, you know, so every child grew up understanding from their elders, their fathers, their mothers, uh, their grandparents, etc. you know, what was going on, the names of plants, what they did, when it was discovered, what it shouldn't, what, what it shouldn't be used for, its sacredness. And, and so it was in the name. And so you just grew up with a fully integrated sense of place. And we don't have that anymore. I mean, there's a beautiful language that was cataloged by a missionary uh, for the Yaman or Salknam people uh, in Terra del Fuego. And it was a dictionary that was made, gosh, you know, just in the 19th century when most of the tribe had been extirpated by disease, really. And there was very few people left, I think 140, 50 people left. And so the tribal chief was the one who basically worked with a lexicographer as a missionary to do this dictionary. He got the 30,000 words and the missionary died. So we don't know how far it would have gone. He wouldn't speak about spirituality and women's issues and other things, cosmology, because the missionary's father had been involved in a massacre, so they didn't really trust him, but they would talk about, you know, all these other words. 30,000 words. Japanese has 40,000 words. These are people that are called beasts by Drake and by Darwin because they didn't wear clothes. They put seal blubber all over them to stay warm in that incredibly cold climate. They knew exactly how to live there. That's why they were still there. And you look at their language it has more verbs than English. And those verbs are metaphors, you know, like, Depression, the word for depression was a crab molting its shell and the shell hasn't come off yet. Nice. Wow. You know, it's just so the language is poetry and metaphor. And Aristotle is one who said genius is metaphor. These are geniuses living on the land. And we come in there as, you know, Europeans in a culture that nearly starved to death if it wasn't for the fact that we found potatoes in Peru in the 16th century. And and basically looking at them as, as I say, beasts, you know, primitives as lesser than. And because we had the mind or the understanding to actually see what they could see. One of our solutions in Drawdown is indigenous people's land you know, protection. Indigenous is the noun of indigene. Indigene means the original inhabitant. The original inhabitant. Guess what? They know that place, that land, those waters and so forth. For them, you know, they didn't even have a word that would, that, that would cause a distinction of them being separate. Right. They didn't have, it wasn't in their brain, you know, and so we never had the opposite, you know, so we looked at them as, well, whatever. Right. And don't you think that on, on, you know, on this level of humanity that we've become so far apart from one another, because for instance, like, you know, we're talking about, you know, the birds in the area. I want to go back to that, you know, learning about the wildlife, you know, understanding like where you are, where you dwell, what are the wildlife in your area? Because there is some, you know, and like, what are the trees? What are the plants? Where is the medicine? All of these things. And, you know, technology has taken a great deal of people's attention away from being a part of what is in front of them, what they're experiencing. 
you know, my whole thought has always been, shouldn't technology be upgraded to the understanding instead of selling us propaganda and selling us advertisements and selling us all of these things, that technology should be utilized as an educational tool so that when you go onto technology, it actually learns you and teaches you about what's happening into ways to evolve you, understanding what's going on in your environment. If, if, let's say, for instance, you log into your computer or you log in and it knows, oh, you're in Arizona. Did you know in Arizona, there's all of this that you can learn? And so it's giving people a different type of way of using technology where still it's it's an educational platform yeah. versus it being a platform that's just sucking us dry and taking away everything. I mean, I'm looking over your shoulder and I can see Waddle, you know, I can see creosote bush, I can see barrel cactus, I can see yucca, you know, I can see desert willow, you know. And, but each one of those, each one of those had a function and a usefulness, you know, to the Native Americans who lived there. They understood them. So not only did they understand them and use them, but they actually revered them, you know, for what they were, which right. is living organism, uh, organisms. And extraordinarily intelligent. We think plants are like, you know, like inert almost. And actually, it's just the other way around. Plants have more senses than we do. They have 20, we have five. Why? Well, because they can't move. We can move around and, you know, and, but plants can't. So they're very susceptible and vulnerable. So they've developed ways of understanding where they are, what they do, how to connect. Plants communicate to each other in 3,000 different ways so far identified, either through mycelium networks or through chemicals, pheromones that are released into the air. And so what we're looking at here is an intelligent community. Somebody else see rocks and desert, right? You can call it that if you want, but you're missing missing what's there, which is extraordinary. And we've just touched, begin just touch on the mechanisms and the interconnectedness of these plant communities. They're everywhere. And indigenous people understood it. And they understood it not in the language that we do and not in the way that they analyzed it and broke it down into pieces and bits, but they definitely understood it and utilized it. And that's why they could live in these places 10, 15, 20,000 years, right? And and until we came along, until Western disease came. And um, so, yes, absolutely, we should have you know, when we go someplace, we should go, there should be an app or this is where you are. Yes. Like, and then like when you hear a bird, your phone should go, you just heard a baby spotted owl. Yes. You know, it's like, <laughs> and here's the whole story. You probably can't see it because it's, you know, hiding in the cedar up there. But, you know, and then the same thing with the plant, like just like a QR code, really. It's like, look right at the plants. It's, oh, you know, that's desert willow. And this is what, you, you know, this is how it grows and this is where its root system is and this is how it's been used medicinally. And, you know, it's like, it's similar to aspirin. It can be used for headaches and for toothaches. I mean, I mean, just all of a sudden, it's like you want to know your neighbors or your friends and their names, except we don't know our neighbors and friends and their plants. And that's the thing, because in the way that I look at it shamanically, like sometimes people will see me come into a room and I'll be staring at their flowers and they're like, why are you staring at the flowers? And I'm like, because I'm having a communication with the flowers, that flower is dying and it's giving me an awareness of love, but it knows it's dying. And so I'm giving love back to it. And my friends are like, oh, you're so weird sometimes. And I'm like, no, I'm not. It's a living spirit and the spirit is dying. And so what happens is people 
don't realize that we have to return back to shamanism. Shamanism is giving us an awareness, not just of our preservation as a species, but the the preservation of all life. And how do we be able to understand these things? So as you were saying, like, you know, I was thinking uh, about what you were just saying. And I was thinking about like, I have friends who do these virtual realities and they're putting these glasses on, Paul. And they go into this world, right, that gives them these headaches if they stay in too long. And I find it the most interesting thing because I laugh because I'm like, why don't they create glasses instead of taking people into these worlds? Why don't they give kids these modules that they put on and they go out in nature and it tells them everything that they see and educates them with the sound in their ear? You're looking at an armadillo. An armadillo does da 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 da. You know, you're looking at this type. Type of um, stone and this stone also has you know has uh, malachite in it and this and that that it's actually educating them and teaching them so that they become a more aware of their environment and how they interact with their environment and the living aspects of their environment I think what happens is is that as human beings we become so caught up in thinking that we're the superior race that literally even in our language if an animal is in the room, or there's a tree nearby, human beings have become so um, focused on the idea that they're going about their lives and these are just things in there around them. You know, like there's just things. They're not living. And in, in tribal culture, the, the sky is the spirit. The, like the other day I was on the grass and I was doing yoga and the woman was like really hot. And so I said, wind spirits come and the wind came. And she's like, how do you do that? I said, I, and I'm a spirit shaman. So I was, I was trained to, to, to acknowledge all spirits. So the spirit, the wind spirits are my friends. I've spent a lot of time building a relationship with them. <laughs> you know, it, it's not just me going out and feeling the wind it. touch my face. Yeah. It's like every time the wind is out, I, I acknowledge it. Hi, good friend. How has it been? How yeah. have you been? And it tells me information about what's happening in other people's spots, what's happening in other parts of the world. World. You know, and sometimes people will say to me, you know, how do you know what's going on in our country? I remember once I arrived in um, Iceland and they put me right on television and the first thing they asked me is like, what do you feel the problems are in Iceland? And I, I said, when I got off the plane, I put my hand on the earth and I asked the earth, what is what is going on? How are you doing? How's things going here? It told me all your issues. And I said, we have this thing, this belief in shamanism that when you drink water and you bring it into your system, water is intelligent. It's intelligent liquid. And what it does is it takes all of the synthesis and energy and all of the frequencies of your body. And when you go to the bathroom and pee in the toilet and that water goes back into the earth, the earth, the water that it can, goes back to, the, the rivers, the lakes, the oceans, reads all that synthesis, then takes that synthesis. And then the air spirits come and take it into the air and share their synthesis from your thinking and from your words that are coming out of your mouth. And then they drop it on the earth. And then the earth picks it up in its rooting system and then reads your synthesis. And then all of a sudden it knows what type of things to adapt, what type, what type of plant should now become poisonous. Then the animals eat it. Now they know what we're doing. And people don't realize that this is happening on a deep spiritual level that all of these, the whole entire ecosystem knows every single thing we human beings are doing and animals are adjusting their behaviors, their reactions. Nature is developing new plants, new species based upon what it's experiencing as a collective of information and data through their whole synthesis process. And I tell human beings like, 
You don't understand that that tree is so smart and that that plant is so smart, it knows exactly what's going on and how we're developing. And one of the things that my elders told me when I was really young was, as humans begin to evolve on earth and show that they are not this aggressive, attacking predator to life, then nature and all animals will then become more relaxed and less aggressive in their need to create defense mechanisms to protect against our aggressiveness. What are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. I mean, there's several things. One is, one, let's go back to senses. I said that plants have 15 more senses than we do. They also have the five that we do have. So next time you see a tree, know this. First of all, a tree can see, not like, you know, high focus, but it can see not color either. It can see tone and movement. So a tree can see you moving as you move past that tree. The tree sees it literally. The tree hears. It it can hear. It can, you know, I mean, it has smell. I mean, it can detect chemicals. It doesn't have a nose, but it can detect chemicals the same way we detect them uh, in our brain. It doesn't have a brain. It's it's intelligence distributed. Why? Because if they had brains, they wouldn't survive. They wouldn't be here today, you know, because they'd be cut off. The core illness, mental illness of Western society is that uh, is of separation and it causes anomie, it causes loneliness, it causes depression, it causes fear, it causes anxiety, it causes materialism, trying to get enough stuff, you know, to make up for your separation from the world. And really that sense of otherness, that idea that there's other, the climate is other, Muslims are other, women are other. Me Too movement is about men thinking women are other. And then treating them that way. As soon as you look at somebody, a Native American, anybody, anything as less than you and separate from you, then you have a justification, a rationale for activity that is harmful. And that's what we see on this earth. I mean, there's things, psilocybin and things like that actually can help you do this. I mean, plants, there's plant substances. They're very much def- that, that turn off. Uh, that default brain network, you know, that, that that is, you know, categorizing and labeling. And when that shuts off and the sensations don't have a filter and you don't have a way to make them separate and so forth. And that's what that experience is about. And that's why plant medicine. I, I have a very strong take on plant medicine that I take, that I bring up a lot. What I found is that people are utilizing those medicines as an escape and utilizing them, you know, as you just said recently, and and this is something that I bring up with a lot of people because a lot of people always say like, oh, you know, I want to buy you this Rolex or, oh, I want to do this for you. And I'm like, I don't need it. I don't need that. Like, I don't have this emptiness inside of me that says I need to fill it with this. I have the need to build relationships. I have the need to talk and share and learn about other people, to learn from other people, to 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 continue bringing new data, new information. But what has happened, what I feel with society is that people have gotten to this place where they've taken the, the reverence and the sacredness of plant medicine. As a shaman, every time someone meets me, the first thing they think is, do you have ayahuasca? Do you have iboga? And I'm a spirit shaman, so we don't deal with plant medicines, even though we know about plant medicines. But what I see people doing in L.A., what I see them doing in New York, what I see them doing in Turkey, what I see them doing in London, is that they're taking the medicine. Like even this one person came up to me and said, 
you know, I took, I went on the ayahuasca experience. I said, okay. And I said, um, what did you get from it? They said, oh, I saw this pure love and this energy and like how we're all connected to everything. I said, that's fantastic. I said, what are you going to do with that? Then what? Then what? Yeah. Well, you know, I'm, you know, living my life and, you know, I work, I work as a lawyer and, you know, in this law firm and, you know, it was a really interesting experience. And then, you know, they're telling me, oh, but I'm going to do it again next week. And I go, why? Why don't you give a, you know, in, in shamanism, you have to give a period of reverence for the spirit and the plant that gave itself to you. You don't do it in the same time frame in that year. You wait for a whole year so that your body, because you have your your whole entire internal system, your you know you're you're operating on your nerves, you're operating on your central nervous system, you're operating on your, every aspect of neurons in your body. Everything is going through a transformation, and then you're gonna like stop that process. <laughs> to reverse it back to the beginning again. And it's like baking cookies. And while you're eating the cookies, you're baking some more cookies. And then while you're baking that cookie, then you're eating those cookies and baking some more cookies. It's like, just stop and enjoy the first cookie you made. I mean, I mean that's a that's a bad analogy, but the fact is that it, 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 the, the gift is there until, but well, I think people just override it, you know, and, and, you know, there seems to be, I don't know where, you know, but why do they override where it? Where do the 3000 Iowa schedules came from out of nowhere? I have no <laughs> idea. I have no idea. <laughs> because I can throw know, a tennis ball in LA and hit a shaman. And I, then absolutely. And then I asked them, I'm like, so tell me, um, do you know how to read the blood? Do you know physiology? Do you know kinesiology? Do you know pathology? Do you understand how the connection of energy between plants and you and earth? And they're like, no. Did you even make the ayahuasca? Did you even make the blend? Did you find alkaloid? Did, I mean, and again, it's just Western wanting to speed things up and get, it's, it's, it's a kind of a spiritual materialism. Approach. I call it the Jiffy Lube effect. The Jiffy Lube effect. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they want the quick fix. Yeah, read People Magazine and get a Jiffy Lube. Yeah. Um, but I don't, I mean, I know underneath all that, the intention, you know, is good. Absolutely. It really is. And Absolutely. I honor that. And I honor people's understanding that the way we operate and see in the world is, you know, inadequate to, to both themselves and their own development, as well as the world outside of them. But at the same time, there's this sense of acquisitiveness, I guess, you know, like some more is better and more is not more. Uh, it's less in this case and 100 percent, yeah but i feel like what's happened is that and you know and i and i go back to this whole idea of like evolution because when i was a kid the one of the things that i was watching and observing was the way in which we develop and as a kid i used to sit in my room and i used to watch like okay you know what is this structure that's set up for me and what is it actually looking like and the first thing i realized that the first structure that i'm actually acknowledging was the idea of following rules and then I had to think to myself as I was, you know, what are these roles that I'm following? Do So I always ask my parents, like, why, what is this role about? And my dad would say to me, well, you don't, you don't ask those questions, boy. You do exactly as I tell you to do. But I'm like, but how do I know what you're telling me to do? How do I know it's for me? There is no container for our ability to develop ourselves, our, in, our, in our intuition, our emotional development, our emotional awareness, our ability to understand emotional intelligence, our ability to connect with one another by learning about ourselves first. One of the things I find with depression, because I loved your whole thing about the crap 
and and depression and shamanism, the way I've put it together in my teachings, is that it means that you're living someone else's design. So you have all these people in life who made choices on the need to be liked and loved that the whole system was built on it. I mean, if you go on Facebook, it's like liking and love, heart heart things. And like, I like your picture. You go on Instagram. I like, I like, I like, I like. Everything is about everyone wanting to be liked and loved. So they're following whatever that flow is instead of recognizing the independence of their individuality that actually connects to the collective so that they're actually an individual data source of information that's able to bring information and wisdom from their being, from their perception, to share it with the tribe of people on Earth. The smartest um, species on the planet is one who knows themselves. The ones who are not knowing themselves are the ones who are not intelligent. Animals know themselves. Absolutely. Trees know themselves. Right. Flowers know themselves. But human beings? We are a community. There's one trillion cells. The gut microbe weighs almost as much as the human brain. It is so complex, it's beyond comprehension. And we have not a clue as to yet as to how it all functions and works. And we may never, it doesn't matter whether we do or don't, the fact is that it is extraordinary. And what's also important to remember is that no one's in charge. That is, you are not in charge. Now, you in charge of what you eat and drink and and see and watch and hear and and inhale, but that's just input. But you are not in charge of this trillion cell extraordinary community of biota, you know, and and so forth. And you better hope that no one else isn't either because they are, I mean, like a political party or something. It is life. And there it is, you know, and, and I sometimes ask people, I say, just stop because there's one septillion things going on in your body right this second and this second and this second and this second. So one with 24 zeros and just stop, close your eyes or not. Can you feel it? Just stop. One septillion things going on more than all the stars in the universe is happening to you right now. And then sometimes I say, if you don't think you're feeling it, just wait until you die. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You compare the difference. 100%. That is who you are. You know, and you're so accustomed to it that you don't feel it. You override it, you know? And so shamanism, I'm not a shaman. Shaman is like, you feel it. If you feel it, then there is no separation between you not one separation. Not everything you see in your eye is you. Yes. So it's you are absolutely connected to the world. Every time you look at anything, there's it is you. That's right. So I don't know if you know, I physically died. And when I died, I asked all these questions. And it was questions about like, why are we on earth? What is this about? Why are we here? What's the purpose? What is God? This and that and the other. And I got all the answers. And I asked to come back. The first thing that happened when I came back was I was flying through space and I saw the earth and its beauty and everything. And then I came back into my body. On the other side, I had no bones. Everything was warm. Everything was just pure love. I felt connected to every single person. I knew who they were. When I went to community areas, I knew who I was talking to. I knew every single thing. And when I when they asked me before I left, do you want to have memory of this place before you go back? And I said, absolutely. So I chose to come back. When I came back, 
They told me I had brain damage, um, kidney failure. They told me I wasn't going to walk again. There's all these things going on. They induced me in a coma. And the interesting thing that I found was when I was going through my healing process of like healing myself, I was, I still had my conscious thoughts, even though they said I was brain damaged, I still could think. And when I was thinking, I remember what they said, malfunction in thinking, you think against yourself. So I decided to think for myself. I started thinking for my body. I started thinking that my my brain is uh, is all, everything, all of my my synapses and everything in my brain was communicating efficiently. My white and gray matter was communicating. Everything was operating in my system. And all of a sudden, my brain damage went away. And then my breathing and everything. And so here I am today, walking and breathing, you know, doing all of these things and living my life because I actually thought for myself. And I found that a lot of people, they get caught up in this idea because they're still in this idea of beating up on themselves and, and being hard on themselves. They're not thinking and uh, about what is our species? What is being here on planet Earth? They're thinking like, I need to pay the bills. You know, I need to make sure that I'm going to be able to have love in my life. Every time I ask people, like, what do you want the most in life? And they're like, I want to know who I'm going to be in love with. Instead of going like, I want to know if our species is going to survive on planet Earth. <laughs> you know, and it's like, it, and it's, 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 it's very fascinating to me because I, I find that like, the focus of attention is on the need to supply that which they can create themselves. Right. Right. Yeah. No question. Well, I did not know that about your experience. And yeah. There's very few people have, there's a lot of near-death experiences because of heart attack. And so people momentarily die and come right back and, you know, they've seen the white light and so forth, so forth. Very few people have actually dwelled there and then made a conscious decision to come back. You know, Proof of Heaven was certainly one of those books where, you know, and this is a doctor, you know, who, you know, had listened patiently when his patients actually uh, talked about their near-death experiences and knew that it wasn't true because he's a neurologist and that, you know, the brain is where the mind is and that's where thought occurs and therefore is bullshit. They had no such thing as a near-death experience <laughs> until he had one that went on for seven days. And I think the book... Is, is is so interesting because it actually uh, represents or is similar to what the Tibetans talk about in the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And that was created by thousands of people over time. It's a collection of experiences, you know, not one person's idea of what happens. And um, by monks who were put in big, what we call jars, basically, with their prayer beads over their hands, over their head, and in the ground, you know, with air holes, obviously, and they could slow their metabolism down to almost nothing. And then, you know, they journeyed, basically, and then they came back and recounted, you know, somebody took down all their experiences in the seven bardos, uh, hell, you know, hell bardos, seven heaven ones. I don't think that is the way we would look at that because uh, there's other ways of looking at it. But nevertheless, you know, and and that that experience, again, you know, if you've had that experience, then you don't need a plant-based substance. <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. I mean, you've had the most amazing substance of all, you know. Yeah, I mean, I'm teaching people literally how to access that level of awareness without plants. Absolutely, and 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 
But I think that, that what's, what's, what's most beautiful about, you know, Proof of Heaven, it really is, he said, this is 1% of what reality. And, and I think that people have to understand that pretty much that's where they are. And the other 99% is extraordinary, you know. In other words, it was so extraordinary. It, yeah, so it's not like, I think most people feel like this is everything and then everything falls off, you know, in any direction after that, you know, death and sickness and and we perish. And it's just the other way around, of course. But, you know, knowing that, feeling that and living that way, as I said, there has to be some fundamental experience of it, you know, that is the teaching itself. And there's a beautiful Peruvian uh, Lakota shaman who talks about the harmful ways that we're treating our mother, you know, the earth. And and she is our mother, you know, exactly our, our mother. mother. Yes. And, and would we treat our mother the way we are treating the earth, you know? And, but he said, you know, out of that understanding comes the question for so many people about what should I do? And he said, that is the second question. The first question is, who do you want to be? Yeah. That'll dictate what you do. Who do you want to be? Who do you want to be? Yeah. And that's, and that's interesting that you say that because a lot of people will come to me all the time and be like, what is my path, Shaman Durek? And I'm like, what do you want it to be? Yeah. You know, I didn't have to choose, even though my, my grandmother chose me to be a shaman and, you know, my mom definitely, um, you know, made it very aware, you know, that my gifts and my abilities should be used for the benefit of people, but it was my choice. Was your grandmother a shaman? Yeah. Really? Yeah. And then her father, her father. and then his brother. Oh. Yeah. In Ghana. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, it was, you know, because the one time this teacher was talking about something and I was telling her, like, you know, I know you had an argument with your husband the night before. So this is why you're acting this way. You know, and everyone always called me the smart aleck because I, they teachers were scared of me because they're like, how is he getting this information? Right. And I go, it's very simple. Your body language has communication. Um, your breathing is a, a breath of stress and frustration. And not only that, but the, my ancestors are telling me that you are having difficulty with your husband and all these different things. And so, but so my friends, you know, were always, I said, you have this gift inside of you as well. The only difference is, is that I was raised and born with it. You have it inside, but we have to develop it. It's there. It's like, um, it's this, it's this part of our being that, People have it, like when they walk into a room, they'll say, oh yeah, you know, the vibes aren't so great in here. Well, how did you figure that out? Like, but, but, but then people don't expand upon it, you know? Like for instance, just now we were in the, we were in the main dining hall and uh, one of the girls, I said to her, I go, do you want to see particles floating in the air? And she's like, yeah, how? I go, I'm going to show you how to access it. And it's going to be so easy. And she's like, really? Because I'm a functional medicine doctor and like, I don't, I've never experienced anything like this. I'm like, I'm going to show you how to do it. And within two minutes, I showed her how to see particles floating in the air. She's like, how did you do that? I said, it's very simple. The fact is, is that you just don't know you can do it. You see, and that's the whole thing is that in spirit shamanism, my, what I'm here to do is to show people what is possible outside of what they think is impossible and to bring it to the mainstream in a way that shows them how to utilize it. So the people, I don't work with a lot of the spiritual community. I work more with doctors, lawyers, Wall Street execs, people in government, people who are coming to me and going like, I want to know about this. I've heard about you. I want to understand this. But the the, the understanding is that, and the reason why I want, what I love with what you said is about 
who do you want to be? Because what people don't understand is that there's nothing holding them. Like the, the idea of resistance, the idea of obstacle, the idea of anything standing in front of them is all created by their perception. You know, and I always say perception is a very interesting thing because a person can be standing right in front of you, but their spirit is in hell perception. So everything they see is attacking them. That's their perception. Another person's perception could be that there's not enough time. And so everything they're doing is rushing around trying to meet some time that they feel that's running out, that is not really happening, but in their world, it is. And so getting people to understand that is realizing that the reason why you can't experience these things, why you're not logging into nature, why you're not stepping into this place and saying, hey, I want to be able to feel energies beyond my what I've been told is possible instead of being afraid of the unknown, realizing that we go through the unknown all through our life. Your first kiss was unknown. Your first date was unknown. You know, the first time you ate some food that you never had as a kid was unknown and we survived. So why are people so afraid to step into that into that precipice and look over the edge and see something that they that is naturally calling them to see? And and so that's what I, you know, that's what I love about you because the first time I heard you speak here at Mind Body Green, I had to sit back and I said, "Oh my goodness. Wow. Here is an amazing man who is Speaking all the stuff that I that I know and understand in the shamanic way, and you were giving it to the people in the way that they could understand when you're putting the pictures, like you were talking about how wind turbines should not be inland and how they should be you know out in the ocean, and how we should you know put um, you know solar panels on indigenous um, homes and you know and living you know and how we should be you know recreate fishing and be able to bring the fishing and all that stuff. It was so poignant. But what I was finding interesting was watching how people were so in awe of it at the Mind Body Green. They were like, oh, but <laughs> I'm going to have you laugh. That <laughs> They were like, oh, my God, it was amazing. But the whole time I was watching their energy, they were like, it was almost like, oh, my God, he's so amazing. But then it's like, OK, but now, but what are you going to do? And so that, 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 and I, and I really want everyone to hear this message of who do you want to be? Yeah. Absolutely. It, you know, once I was a caretaker at a, at a refuge, uh, a Buddhist refuge, uh, and nobody was there. It was out of season. It was in the mountains in New Mexico. And I was there for three months alone. And there was no electricity, no phone, no mail, no TV, no radio, no nothing. It was just the trees and the water and the air and the animals and the critters in the house. Uh, in the middle of all that. And so for three months, I was in silence. It was easy to do. There's no one to talk to. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Don't> wanna... <laughs> it, was, it wasn't a vow of silence. It was the fact of silence. I'm always talking to myself. Yeah. And actually for the first week, it was pretty loud. You know, I mean, my God, the first week by yourself, nobody around, your mind is going, talk about the monkey minds. It's the monkey tribe. <laughs> <laughs> it's like... <laughs> And then it starts to quiet down a little bit, you know, and I did two things. One is that I, I like, I took a, like a, a, a direction, you know, because in the wilderness, in, in, a, in a national forest, there's nobody there within 20 miles. And I, I just take off in one direction and try to get lost. And which sounds like a stupid thing to do, but actually it wasn't because the only way to find out where you are is to 
be aware, you know, everything around you, the sky, the waters, you know, the shadows, um, the foliage, uh, what's in north side, south side, all that sort of stuff you can see. And and one day I did actually finally get lost, but that was, you know, and then, which is interesting, actually, I, I, the low cloud cover, and you couldn't see, it was almost foggy. I didn't know where I was, you know, and it was such a great experience. But twice during that time, I had to go to town to get some more food. <laughs> there's a natural food store in Taos and I went there and it sounded like a cacophony I mean everybody's talking and I was like you know a little shopping cart going on getting you know vegetables and things and what everybody was saying was so vivid you know I, I was listening to what everybody was saying and I realized for the first time that everything we say everything we say is about ourselves there's nothing else we can talk about. I don't mean that in a narcissistic way. I just mean that's just fact. Yeah. And so when I think, you know, when I see our president tweeting, you know, what he tweets is cowardly, crooked, disgusting, you know, all these adjectives that he's using about other people. What I see is a person living in the hell. hundred percent. hundred percent. He's in hell. He's definitely, 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 definitely. Definitely, from all of my shamanic senses. Yeah, I mean, his his spirit is sitting in hell while he's in a physical body. Yeah, yeah, it's never have I ever seen anything so vividly as that. And for me, I actually feel compassion. Like he redefines suffering. Uh, I mean, literally. I, I kid you not. I, I know why we're friends because we. That's exactly what I told people. I said, "Well, you know, so at this time in our evolution in shamanism, we call this the blackout." I'm actually writing a book that's coming out next year, at the end of fall. It's called Blackout, and yeah. it's all about the everything that we have not accepted and brought into like really interfacing with in a place of love and like caring and nurturing and like how are we going to not like you said not mitigate but completely change everything is coming up for us to see so we can see this energy in front of us and you know everyone was saying to me you know is trump gonna win is trump gonna win shaman do you think trump's gonna win i said of course he's gonna win they're like, why? I said, because he has to show you the depravity of his spirit in front of you, the darkness energy in front of you. You're going to see him make comments that are rude and, you know, disrespectful and everything. And he's not, these have nothing to reflect upon. Like, this is not, if you want to take that in, that's your choice. He's just letting you know where he's at. And everyone was getting angry at him. I was having compassion for him. I was having compassion for, I have compassion for every single person on the planet who is operating in a place where they're in self-suffering and pain and anguish and, and destitute and all of these different experiences emotionally and that people are just reacting to, to all of this stuff. And I said, you know, the reason why you're reacting is because you don't have emotional intelligence fully intact. If you had emotional intelligence, you would understand and look at him and go, oh, okay, mm-hmm. I understand what's going on. Everyone's reacting, 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 reacting. I go to LA, every conversation I got on the table, they bought, they brought up his name. I said, you know, all of you should just really go to the White House and really go and campaign for a second quarter. <laughs> and they were like, what? Shaman, what did you say? I'm like, yeah, because 
your focus, like I love this word that I hear people say, it's called I don't resonate. And people say, I don't resonate with that, that, that darkness. I'm like, uh, yeah, actually yeah. you do. And one of the things that I bring up a lot, and I find it's funny because in, even in the spiritual community, I have met so many people in the spiritual community who are scared of me. And they'll even ask me questions like, you seem kind of dark. I'm like, do I? I seem dark. Okay. And they're like, yeah, you seem kind of dark, you know? And, you know, I don't know. Like I have sometimes, I heard people like do your, they do your workshops and people start throwing up and they start crying and going through all that. And we don't want that. We want everyone to be happy. And I'm like, really? I'm like, well, that's not real happiness. You cannot get to the light, this love and light thing that everyone's talking about, unless you go through your shadow. Literally, whenever I want to ask a question about something, I go like this. Shadow, what do you think about this uh, event? Uh, or shadow, what do you think about me getting in business with this person? Or shadow, what do you think? The shadow never lies to me. When I did Iboga, I did it in Turkey um, with an African um, elder. And one of the things he asked me, it was like, are you really willing to commit to being a shaman? He was going over like my whole shaman thing. And all my, I, like, it was like, the tr- it was almost like the truth doors opened. And I saw every single thing presented to me. And it was like, do you want to be a shaman? And, I, and I, it was like, I'm afraid. And it was in all the fears that came up was dealing with society, dealing with society. And so when I was done with my whole Iboga experience, he said to me, your biggest thing is your being accepted and being a shaman. And he goes, and if you have that, you're not going to be able to do what you, what your ancestors want you to do. And it was so clear. He's like, you've come here not to win the best uh, award for happiest, most likable guy. You came here to ruffle feathers. So he's like, so until you can embrace that, you're going to have this problem. And I was in my early twenties. Now I'm 43 years old. I literally, after my death experience, then it all became clear to me. But even all the way up to my death experience, and in shamanism, we have a rites of passage, and every shaman has to go through rites of passage. That's so why I ask people when they go do these treatments, I go ask them if they had a rites of passage and tell, ask them what it was like. Because I can tell you, if it's a real shaman and they really have like done the training and really understand the connection to spirit and the spirit has really asked them to be this, the rites of passage was not some easy like walk in the park. It's like it literally rips your whole entire being and 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 keeps you so raw, but it it's, but it puts you in a humble state of humility so you can be open to the essence of everything so you have clarity. It was all about clarity for me. And when I came back from dying and I was like there was not one fear inside of me. Mm. And I realized cuz when I was dying when it was happening and I and I was having the seizures and I and all of a sudden my lungs collapsed and I started going into cardiac arrest because of the potassium levels being mm. so high. Literally, I could hear myself screaming in my thoughts going I changed my mind, I changed my mind and immediately the answers to start speaking to me going you asked for this to happen so that you can die to your old self and be reborn to your new follow the journey. And I was like, and it was even worse because I heard the voice and I could feel the pain like stabbing all over my body. It was so intense. But when I came back, I remember being in the hospital and it was, there was no fear anymore. It was like, 
I don't care if people don't like me. I don't care if people if I if people get annoyed with what I have to say. If people have an issue with me, and I and I and I honestly believe that that is the reason why I work with more mainstream society than I do just with the spiritual niche. Because I when I deal with the spiritual niche, I like they, they they're like shaking around me because I'm like I'm sorry, but I'm not into this love and light thing because you're not even looking at this aspect. Like show me your darkness, bring it out. They're like what? What does that mean? Like I don't have darkness. I'm like of course you do. I do. We all do. And so in what they ask me is so that when I come back to earth to help people understand the, how the brain and how the, the connectivity of, of information from the spirit world. So I started taking people and doing these tests on them where I take a person, sit them in the chair, I say, bring up a negative thought and they would bring it up. I said, now ask the negative thought a question. Where do you come from? And they said, the darkness. I was like, okay, let's keep going. They're like, no, I don't want to go anymore. Yeah. I'm like, no, let's keep going. You're yeah. fine. Let's watch. And until we, until as long as we stay in condemnation and persecution, we are not able to lift those beings out of darkness, which will allow because uh, like this body, this my body is, is a biological spacesuit. My cells, my organs were living spirits. My lung is a living spirit. I can talk to it right now. It will tell me exactly what it needs. When I go, I, I, I eat one meal a day, every day. And people watch me like I have lunch, they go to breakfast, whatever. And they're like, are you okay? You don't have hunger pains? I'm like, no, I'm not hungry. I'm fine. My, I, my body and I, are, we have a really great relationship. That's my body. My body tells me exactly what it wants. I'm like, what do you want? Because I want this, I want this, I want this. And then when it's done, it's like, don't eat anymore. We need more water. It's, it just talks to me because every organ is a spirit that chose to be my organ. These beings, I talk to them all the time. I'm like, so uh, why does this woman have cancer? They'll say, because she doesn't want to live anymore. So we've come to help her. I go, oh, okay. Why is this guy um, acting out and, 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 you know, doctors say he's bipolar. Why is he having these, these episodes? And uh, the spirit will say to me, well, he gives and 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 has no reference of his boundaries whatsoever. He has no reference of himself outside of other people. So the reason why he acts that way is to get back his energy that he gave away. I go, oh, interesting. Interesting, fascinating. Why does this person have schizophrenia? They're like, this person has had a trauma that they haven't been able to deal with. And so we are multidimensional beings and every part of their multidimensional being has become fragmented to help them and assist them put themselves back together. It's The darkness tells me, it's like the beings in the underworld tell me exactly what's going on. They're not like these demons that people are, they're, you know, I remember when I was doing all this exorcism work in, in Italy and um, and, I was, and I was working and finally I was like, this is really hard spirit. And I was asking my answers like, this is really hard. But like, it's hard because you're making it hard because you're not interfacing and communicating. You're going in with this idea that you have to be like inominus padre and go into this whole thing, which you don't really have to do. Just talk to the spirit. So I was like, why are you doing this to the woman? They said, because the woman doesn't like being in this marriage and she can't stand her husband. And so she's called us in because she needs a way to be to react and to fight and to get mad. And so that she doesn't feel like she's doing it. She feels like she's possessed. Right. There's a very interesting, uh, I don't know if you know Bancroft, there's a Bancroft library in UC Berkeley, but he was a famous anthropologist who was the first person to really go to the Northwest Indian cultures, you know, Native American cultures. And this is six volumes. You would love it because it's really about the traditions and customs. Obviously observed through a lens which you have to, you know, defilter. Uh-huh. Of course. You know, of course. I mean, you know, but, but one of them in this particular tribe, uh, only women 
could become shamans. In order to become a shaman, they had to have a dream. It had to be a true dream. In order to test if it was a true dream, they went to the elder shaman women, the elders, and then she would tell them their dream and they would say up or down, yes or no. No, 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 yes, she's had a true dream. Then she had to, uh, she ate acorn gruel for nine days only, and then for, excuse me, 10 days, and then 10 days in a sweat water only, nothing, no food. In the tamaskal. Uh-huh. In the tamaskal, in the sweat, sweat. Yeah, in the, yeah, 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 in the sweat. And then 10 days of acorn gruel, and then 10 days of sweat, and then 10 days of acorn gruel, until such time as she could disgorge her disease. Or darkness and actually see it, literally see it, you know, hold it. And then she had to reengorge it. Yeah. So she could see everyone else's disease. That's exactly right. That's the same in African shamanism. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. It's the same exact thing. He says we don't do the whole sweating thing. The difference is is that the spirits so come yeah. and make us um like create all of these things for us to experience until we get to a place where we can see the darkness. We have to embrace it with love and then we have to bring it back into ourselves so that we can able to see other people's darkness. Exactly right. Yeah. I mean, and so Trump is, is just, is a gift. I know I can't say that too loud. People just go crazy. <laughs> it doesn't mean that he and isn't doing a lot of harm and the people he's appointed aren't doing harm and harming people and hurting people. Those 2000 children ripped away from their families. It is uh, basically... I mean, talk about uh, a, a crime against humanity. That is a crime against humanity. I mean, that's the Hague, from from my point of view. You could yeah. you get tried for that shit. Yeah, you know, and not, persecuted, and persecuted, you know, and so forth. So, but having said all that, I still think basically we manifested them. It's our darkness. It's the darkness of this country. Oh my God, I love you so much. I love you. I love you so much. It's like. I can't even, the word love doesn't even describe it because that is every single thing I have been saying to people. Yeah, absolutely. I'm like, people are like, oh, there's a rapist. Oh, there's a, this person's doing this. I'm like, we created them. Oh, this person's doing that. I go, we created them too. Yeah. So that's the, th- that's the same otherness I was talking about. Who making Trump other? Well, I mean, nobody could do it better than him, you know, being other than almost everybody because even the people who are his friends think he's other, but he's not. He's not. And uh, it's just, this is a very, very, very telling moment in this country. It so is. <laughs> I love this moment. And I love it. I would, something I didn't say today, but I want to say is like, you know, we are making our great-grandchildren right today. This idea that, oh, I'm preg- pregnant, I'm pregnant, and, you know, I should change my diet and do this. It's like, well, yeah, but understand you're also making your great-grandchild today, you know, if you're going to reproduce, you know. I mean, just the continuity, the depth, you know, over time and space and place is just so extraordinary, you know. When you get in touch with that, you know, it's not like, oh, karma, it's beyond karma. And it is karma, but I mean, in the sense that there's an action, there's a, a opposite reaction. But I mean, but what we're seeing here is is world class shadow arising. <laughs> shadow rising. That's what I'm shadow rising. I like that. Shadow rising. I feel everyone they need to become shadow dancers. And again, you see people so beset by, so obsessed by, and I, I, I same thing. I, I, I go into these very intelligent people doing all these interesting things, and all of a sudden, all they can talk about is go down the rabbit hole with Trump. 
I go, is that really interesting to you, you know? Because actually they're talking about their own fears. That's exactly right. You know, and they're not talking about him at all. No, nope. is he talking about nope. Hillary he's, or he's, he's creating Obama a mirror. or anybody else? You know, when he just you know skates, he's creating a mirror for people to see the darkness that they don't want to look at within right. themselves. Right. And I say that so clearly to people, you know. And a lot of people will ask me like, why I put so much energy into my work with women. And, you know, I've been doing a lot of testing of, you know, how we operate within our senses, especially with women and with men. And what I found with women is that women operate by seeing the possibility of danger. Whereas I see men going into situations, they operate on a, like women are operating more on a quantum, men are operating more on a linear. And do you, what, what are your thoughts on that? I hadn't thought of it that way. The quantum linear, I mean, men definitely love linear ways of creating, thinking, projecting, mapping, explaining. I mean, it it, it comes to them so easily and well. I think of women as, I would say, is sort of field sensing. You know, they sense the field. But isn't that a quantum reference? I think so, yeah. I hadn't thought of it as quantum, but, you know, so it's, it's everything. And then within that, there's pieces and parts and so forth. The men are working from the parts and pieces upwards and the women are working from the field inward or to but, yeah, yeah, that's right. opposite from the opposite direction, which is why they're the core of family and not men as women are. And you know, they hold the family. They are the creators of family and community. And not that men can't be that person as well, but they aren't necessarily. Women do it automatically. It's so deeply uh, integrated, but I don't mean, I don't, you know, I was born with a twin sister. So in a way I felt like for the first, I don't know how many years of my life, I felt, you know, we were androgynous, not in genitalia, but for me growing up, you know, I've always been more puzzled by men than women. Men have puzzled me, you know, like from the time in the locker room and they were snapping your ass with towels and going, what's that about? You know, and just the way men were treating each other, you know, boys at that time, but, you know, teenagers and boys. And where did they learn this? Where did they learn to speak that way? Why are they, why are they bullying? Why are they making victims? You know, you know, why are they picking on this person? Why, you know, all the stuff that, you know, and then part of the reason that I felt later was that because we don't have any rites of passage in our culture. And so every teenager is making up their own. I thought about that theory. And one another thing that I thought about was because when I died and I, I was asking about like, how, what is the thing that the darkness wants to snuff out energetically on the planet in order to keep, to keep, to build this infrastructure of slavery that we actually, you know, mm-hmm. are experiencing. And one of the things that I was told was the feminine energy. And I remember growing up with a father who's very African Asian. He's a very intense man. And he would never show a sign of weakness. Like not one, I've never seen my dad cry in his whole entire life until the very end, towards the end of his life, when he saw me come back from the jungle, the things that I was doing there and from other countries. And it was for him, any form of emotion or any emoting of emotion from me was considered a weakness. And he wanted to weed it out of me as fast as possible, which I found it was very fascinating because if you think about it, a man who is not able to connect into his feminine energy, he cannot sense how his actions are affecting the people around him and what his act, what he's building and what he's designing in the world 
how it will have a greater effect on humanity. So I started thinking about that because women will walk into a room or like for example, I was at a friend's house in Israel and her, her child was walking out of the room and she was cooking something on the stove and she's like, stop, don't touch that. I was like, what? what? And I went and looked and her child was going over to touch something. And I was like, he's not even in the room. How did you see him? She's like, I'm a mother. I sensed all possible things that my child can do. And when I saw the patterns of his feet moving, I knew exactly where he was going. I was in shock. (laughs) I was like, amazing. And I asked her husband, I said, you know, what did you think about that? And he goes, oh yeah, you know, whatever. He's like, I'm not focused on that, (laughs) you know? And I thought it was interesting. And I find like, when I look at like the whole, you know, a margin when people get into the whole, like, you know, gay versus straight and, you know, the, the very homosexual thing or whatever. I look at that as evolution, actually developing an understanding of our beings in the feminine, masculine nature. Because in shamanism, especially in African shamanism in and in Ghana, we have this belief that, you know, people who are um, gay or people who are bisexual are gatekeepers to the elements. And they're known as the fifth element. And they hold all the elements in them to balance us back into a place where masculine and feminine become synergized. And it's not about this being these two polar opposites. And so I see my dad was the macho guy who would punch me you know, and be like, I mean, I remember literally my dad thought I was so weak because I was so emotional and so feminine that he took me to this guy to learn karate, to teach me Taekwondo. And the first thing he did was, um, he goes, I'm bringing you, I'm going to make you a man. And I was like, okay. (laughs) And then he took me to this, this Taekwondo studio and the sensei punched me in the stomach. And I, it was the most painful thing. And I fell down to the floor and then he goes, And then he goes, okay, get up. And I was like, what is this guy abusing me? You know, and back in those days, like in, you know, in the early 80s and late 70s, you know, a lot of things were okay. You know, you could touch, do a lot of abusive things to be uh, to kids and so forth. It wasn't considered like abuse at that time until the early 90s when they started calling abuse. And my dad's like, you see how weak he is? He needs more of that. He goes, don't worry, Mr. Verrett, I'm going to show your son how to become a man. And he was the hardest sensei on me because he would like all the time hit me and make me feel the pain and then say, strengthen yourself and and strengthen your stomach so you wouldn't have to feel that. And I was like, what is this? You know, and my dad's whole thing was the stronger you are, the more respect you got from him. So, and I look at a lot of my male friends and I talk to them and I realize that there is an issue in men that we don't emote our emotions. We don't, if I look at like how women, I watch my female friends, they're very affectionate with each other. They touch each other. They hug each other. They share their emotions with each other. I don't see that with my male friends. They're just like, yeah, I'm going through some things, you know, we, we don't get affection, enough affection in our lives. We get it from our children if we have children, but most men don't have affection. So they don't understand, you know, like so I, was, I was looking at it from the, the understandings. I was talking to this woman the other day here in Arizona and she's like, how should I, how should I raise my boy? You know, Shaman Dirk. I said, look, you're going to raise your boy because you're going to, you're the mother and you're going to, you can't buy a book on how to raise a child. Teach your child the life code that lives inside of you. So instead of pulling off the butterfly wings off of a butterfly and killing the butterfly, 
teach them first to understand the beauty of the butterfly, that, that it exists. Right. And she was like, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. You know, I create a container for your, for, for your son to, to, to be able to, to experience the emotions. If your son starts to cry, don't let your husband or you jump in and stop him from crying. Let him experience his emotions and then talk to him about it. Invite him into the conversation. And, you know, and you said that you said about, you know, about mothers being, you know, what was that you said uh, was that out of all the tests that you did with all the scientists and all of the people who came together, which was like, how many were there? Were you? Like 220, yeah. That's a lot. Yeah, it is. <laughs> 220 people. And what was the number one thing that you discovered? Well, in terms of the solution, yeah, empowering women and girls. Right. And it's so funny because, I mean, number six solution is educating girls, but you don't educate girls. You empower them to get an education. You create the conditions in which they're supported in terms of their family, their books, their uniforms, everything, so that they're upheld, you know, and honored and supported by the community and everything. Second, so it's a form of family planning because those girls make very different life choices than a girl who's yanked out of school, never allowed to go to school. And there's 130 million of them in the world right now who aren't, who aren't in school who should be. Should be in the sense that it would further their education. You know, they're around fifth, sixth grade, around puberty is when they get sort of sidetracked. And they get sidetracked to either work to put their brothers, brothers through school or their early marriage is one or the other. And they have an average of five plus children. And those children live in more destitute lives because she does not have a good education. So she doesn't earn much. She doesn't marry well or because she's been married off uh, by someone else. So that's not a relationship that has strong foundation. And the children's health outcomes are dodgy because of poverty and where they live and their nutrition, et cetera. It's a very, it's a vicious circle. And the woman who goes to school makes very different life choices and she can earn more. She knows more about the world. She has more choices and she chooses to have two plus children. So it's a difference of three plus children. So the difference between that is the high and the median UN population in 2050. So this, again, Andrana, we get our data from the world. You know, it's not like we're saying, ought should this, that we know. No, we're just saying this is what that we, the larger we knows. And the UN says the whole difference between the median high population, 1.1 billion people difference is really family planning. So that's one form of family planning. And the other form is actually family planning, which is clinics everywhere in the world to support women's reproductive well-being, health and choices and their ability to create families, you know, that make sense to them and their husband or them anyway. And uh, you put those two together, it's the number one solution to reversing global warming. And again, it's you know, we found so much of that. Wait, can you say that again? It's the number one solution to reversing global warming. And it's the empowerment of women and girls. I remember once being at UC Santa Cruz and having a professor uh, in the audience saying, after I gave the talk, and it said exactly what I just said to you. He said, yeah, but how do we control population? That was uh, so interesting. And I said, lose the verb. It's the wrong verb. Completely. Yeah. You, you empower. Women know what to do. They do. You don't. And what's so fascinating to me about the climate establishment is you have very established, esteemed, extraordinarily knowledgeable scientists and journalists. One of them is Jim Hansen and just 
first one who from NASA who told the Congress in, I think, 1987 about the dangers of global warming. And then in a year ago, an interview in Rolling Stone said, basically, if we don't go all out nuclear, you know, we're going to be toast. And I just want to say what we did at Drawdown is we did the math. We just did the math. You know, we didn't, we, we had a methodology that prohibited bias or prohibited well, I think, or I feel, or, or assumptions, or anything of that nature. All of that, right. out, out, and, yeah. And we had each other and a methodology to reinforce that, so that we all wanted data that was impeccable, you know, that was unassailable. And uh, you can say wish, want, whatever with respect to nuclear, and that's just a fairy. That's a fairy tale, not going to happen. We're not setting policy or saying you should, shouldn't. We're just looking at the rea- reality. It's the only energy source. It's become more expensive every decade for the last 40 decades, and it's uninsurable unless the government insures it. And so good luck, nuclear. I mean, it doesn't mean the Chinese won't do it and this and that and so forth. But what we saw, though, you know, again, was the number one solution was refrigerant management. And I have to tell you, because it's a model that's a it's a whole model and everything interacts with everything else. So it's not like you can model in silos. And we knew, well, this this solution is this one, and later we know this one, and then we know this one. We actually knew them all at the same time. And we kind of pushed the total button two uh, months before the book was published because we had all the plates, we were designing it, and we put the numbers in last, you know, and then had to change copy accordingly. But so we had those so we could send in the plates, you know, two months later and all, all the numbers. We were shocked. We were so surprised if you had asked us to make a list of what the top solutions were before we started, we would have been wrong. At the time we started, it was COP21, the Conference of the Parties in Paris. And I said then, because I could kind of get a sense then of like, whoa, we really don't know. You know, not, I said, I think you could ask all 30,000 delegates and people there and say, here, piece of paper, write the top 10 solutions in any order, you know, don't worry about it, any order, not one single person would have gotten it right. So here we are 50 years into public awareness of the most important, incomprehensibly wicked problem that humanity has ever faced. And no one, could write the top five or 10 solutions in the world. And this is the experts, this is Paris, this is COP21. And, you know, and so the first one is refrigerant management because refrigerants are thousands to 12,000 times more powerful than CO2. And they're all escaping out of air conditioners and refrigerators all over the world. I, I can't stand air conditioners. Yeah, I mean, I can't either, but I'm just saying is when you come in from when I was landing, you know, with the plane, you know, coming in, in Phoenix and went low enough and I was telling my wife, look at all those boxes, look at all those boxes and all those big warehouses, air conditioners, air conditioners, air conditioners, oh they're all air conditioners, you know. Oh so my see, goodness. And the number two solution is offshore wind, but number three was reduced food waste. Number four was plant-rich diet, you know. Number five was... Say that again, plant-based diet. Rich. Plant-rich diet. It's based, but it's rich. And what we want to, we didn't want to imply we knew what somebody else should eat. So vegan, vegetarian, omnivore, that's your business, not our business. Our business is to tell you that if we eat 50 grams of protein a day, which is the healthy level, 
And we have a substantial amount of that being plant-based proteins, seeds, nuts, grains, et cetera, that this is the impact it has. Mm -hmm. It has a huge impact on climate and on greenhouse gases. Number five was protection of tropical forests. Number six was girls' education. Number seven was family planning. Number eight uh, was solar farms. (laughs) Number nine was silvopasture, which has been around for 3,000 years. But basically the intercropping of trees and grasses and animals, putting them all together. It's amazing how productive that is and how much carbon is sequestered into the soil. And number 10 is rooftop solar. So, I mean, solar and wind were there in the top 10, and I think everybody would put it, have put them there. But I think almost everybody in the world would have got the, 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 the other eight wrong and they wouldn't have named them. Because they're not thinking, they're not thinking, they're thinking more in the sense of what they see in their environments. They're thinking like men. They yeah. know the 60, 70% of the carbon up there is from burning coal and gas and oil. So they say, hey, so let's stop doing that. Right. Got that one right. Here's, this, <laughs> here's, here's the substitute, you know. But the way they're out, thinking like men. They're thinking exactly like in men. In a very linear way. <laughs> a very linear, straightforward way. Yeah. But what happens when you communicate that? What happens? You stand up and say, oh, solar is getting cheaper and wind and this, and we're winning and it's growing and renewable and electric cars aren't they amazing all this sort of stuff you make people think that the solution is out there somewhere and hope they do it instead of realizing that everything we do is involved it's a system that causes it's a system that heals it and within healing of the system is incredible possibility opportunity meaning work purpose dignity jobs prosperity and that's what's been missed in the climate conversation in the in the focus on renewable energy which of course is crucial no question about it. We can't continue to burn coal or power our cars with gasoline. But but the idea that somehow that if we don't do that, that we've solved the problem is absolutely not true. Wow. Yeah. And that's, again, we didn't know though, which is really great. And the fact that we were surprised, all of us, to me was a validation of our methodology. Because if we had thought, ma, 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 and then there it was, like I knew it, you know. Yeah, you wouldn't have come to the conclusive understanding. It'd be confirmation. Yeah. It'd be confirmation bias. And we we would have somehow, you know, steered data or research. You would have finagled it to fit into what you think would have actually been the situation. And it wasn't one of us in the 220 that wasn't surprised. In fact, so much so that some of them, I mean, really, really questioned it, you know, because it went against their beliefs in such a powerful way that they couldn't even accept it, you know? And so we hit the model hard again, you know, said, okay, let's go hit it. Let's go find the mistakes. Couldn't find one. And in a year, well, it's actually almost 14 months now that the the book and the model and the data have been out. Not one scientist has come at us with a gotcha. Like you got that wrong. Not once. Not once. And I'll, I'll tell you, if there is any gotcha community in the world, it's the science community. hundred percent. They're like... And I say 100% a lot because I'm like, wow, and 100% are my words right now because I'm in, I'm in, like, everything you're saying is blowing my mind. And secondly, 
It's very true. They're looking. They're always looking for the wrong, gotcha. so they can say, "Oh, yep, you're wrong. You're wrong. You're, you're wrong, wrong, wrong. You're wrong. You're yeah. wrong." Which means I'm right. And uh, the fact that that hasn't happened in 14 months, I'm not saying there isn't one there. There may be one. I mean, but the fact is, a lot of people and the scientists who have joined us since then, the top climate scientists in the world. You know, Jakob Schellenhuber in, in Germany and Dr. Carlos Nobre in South America and Brazil and so forth. I mean. They're coming because for the first time, the world has had a solutions model, not a climate model. A climate model is about the probability of what's going to go wrong, when, and the impact it'll have where, to which people, in, in what way. Really good science, good projections, good model to have, good way to, to understand where we are to set policy. We've never had a solutions model until now. And so um, why it took, you know, a bunch of people in Sausalito, California to put together this coalition and do it, I don't know. You know, that's an anthropological question. Why did we wait so long? Why did it take us? You know, we're not a university. You know, nobody gave us money at first. They didn't, I don't know why. They just thought, well, show us when you're done. You know, <laughs> I, I always think it's because people just don't really care at the point to be dealing with that. Yeah. They rather focus on other things that they feel like, you know, they can either get money from or they can like, you know, build some kind of substantial power from instead of like really focusing on like none of those things will mean anything. Like I said, you know, this woman said to me once she was uh, um, doing stuff for the Obama administration and she had made a comment to me once. She said, you know, I'm surprised that you don't put up Black Lives Matter on your Instagram, Shalman. You're such a, you know, a, a very popular person that would be really, you know, I don't I don't see you supporting the Black Lives Matter movement. And I said, um, uh, uh, you are uh, focusing on a symptom. You are not focusing on the core. The core is the core is why do we as human beings think it's OK to hurt our own species now? We fix that problem and none of these racist issues and all the things that you're talking about will have anything because we will start understanding how to fix these situations and be done with them because we will stop hurting our own kind. So that won't even come into play anymore. So what happens, I feel like is people get so caught up in the symptoms of things that they but they don't really want to look at the real issue, the core. If you don't deal with the core, then it's like, like as you know, if you don't deal with the core, then then sickness is going to the sickness of the planet and the sickness of people is just going to continue. It's not it's it's not going to go anywhere. And that's why we don't use the word climate change. We don't say, well, first of all, fighting, combating climate change. These are war metaphors. Yeah. Uh, first of all, like, come on. Or sports metaphors, you know, tackling climate change. That's the one. Fighting cancer. Yeah, yeah. Fighting yeah. cancer, all these sort of things. And f- so that's like it's other and we're going to, it's an object and we're going to go at it and we're better than that and all that sort of stuff. That's why we say reversing global warming, because global warming causes climate change. Climate change does not cause global warming. So you go to first cause, you don't go to symptom. And the, the climate change is, is changing, that's symptomatic. What's the cause? Let's address the cause. We do it with our feet, our hands, our mouths, our eyes, our, everything we do every day. This is something we can do. We can't fight climate change. We can only delude ourselves that there's such a uh, you know, act is possible. Right. Yeah, like a, you know, like it makes Don Coyote look like a pragmatist. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> you know, yes, I mean, fighting climate change is like, I mean, and the language, negative emissions, that's another language, you know, slashing emissions, you know, as if we had 
carbon machetes, you know. But I think it's like, I think it's like, um, uh, you know, a cloak over people's eyes. Yeah. I feel like these words that they're throwing at the general public is to give them like this, you know, like, okay, cool. You got that. You guys, you all have that handled. You have that handled. I don't need to worry about that because you're going to be slashing emissions. That's great. No one even knows what that means, yeah. you know? And so you have this kind of like collective of people on earth and they're saying it to you and everyone's like, okay, cool, great. Because they don't really understand that like you can't do that. It doesn't work that way. And yeah. so it's really about the education, you know, like even like the whole thing and I wanted to talk to you about before, you know, since we're coming to the end of our show, but I want to talk about single bottle plastics, you know, I hear people talking about it all the time. And one of my good friends, um, Bonnie Wright, her and I are very strong activists about, you know, like even like being here in a hotel like we're in right now, like it's plastic bottles everywhere. Yeah. And like I'm sitting here with my beaker, you know, and you have yours and everyone is, is drinking out of plastic cups, plastic bottles. I saw plastic bottles sitting all by, you know, all down by the pool area. Like everyone is just plastic bottle. Then you go and, you know, you go to I go I went to a couple um, restaurants that were vegan restaurants in L.A. and they had plastic straws. So I'm like, you're kind of defeating the purpose here because people actually think, and I even heard a friend of mine say, well, you know, you just recycle it. And I'm like, uh, yeah, we don't have recycling anymore. We ship everything to China and China is refusing our recycling. So where do you, 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 people have this entitlement, you know? And my book that's coming out next year, I talk about, it's called Your Entitled Ass. And it's basically about the fact that people have this entitlement that they actually think that just because they do a a plastic thing into a plastic recycling bin, that it's going to, that someone's going to take it and fix it for them and do and put it somewhere to make the, the environment better. And they're like, I'm doing my part. Yeah. What is your thoughts on that? Well, I was just in Oregon. I spoke to the Association of Oregon Recyclers and they hit the wall uh, because the Chinese now are basically prohibiting shipments of recycled material from the United States unless it meets very, very high standards in terms of cleanliness. And we don't. And so shipments are being returned or not accepted at all. Uh, if it has food waste in it and the plastic, they don't want to accept it. I mean, if it's got mixed material, you know, with two things are laminated together, they won't accept the whole shipment. And so now recycling material in Oregon is going to landfills. They have no place to put it. And so it's so interesting. It's being collected as recycled material. And what I said to them in the, uh, two days ago was that, you know, everything out there, including our body, is designed for disassembly. In other words, it's designed to be in a cycle, you know, and everything we get pretty much is not. And recycling is an add-on, it was a bolt-on to a system of extraordinary waste, a take-make waste system, you know, that actually depended on waste actually as an economic driver. And until we change that upstream, then recycling won't work downstream in any case. The point is to move to a zero-waste society because that's really what we see again in nature. And the zero-waste society won't need, you know, big... We won't be shipping anything anywhere because the waste will be so valuable. They'll be reusing or we'll be making or it becomes basically the material for another product will be upcycling, if anything. So I think the recycling movement definitely has hit the wall in this country because it was pretty sloppy. And I don't blame the movement itself so much as I think people got very accustomed to being very sort of 
careless, frankly, and just tossing things in bins. Yeah, that's my entitlement statement. Yeah, and and oh, I think it's an oh, no, we're oh, I'll put it in that bin and walking away from it. Those that stuff gets rejected. You know, they they can throw something in a bin, the whole bin's rejected. Because even here, in lines where people are sorting it, you know, you have mostly, with all due respect, Latino workers. I mean, it's crazy. You know, I mean, all day long, and these, you know, you know, these just wave of garbage coming down these, you know, um, belts. And they're sorting out. They're trying to pick out the stuff. But, you know, lots of times they'll just, you know, just throw it away, throw it away. They can't, they can't put it in, you know, the ba- the bales because the bales they are corrupted. You can't put the corrupted bales through the Because yeah, it won't be, it won't whether be accepted. Like a, but whether here or there, it doesn't right. make any difference, you know. And so... But people really, don't know this. They don't know, know this information. No, and, but I do feel like, you know, as in, in Costa Rica, somebody gave me two bamboo straws. It was so great. And, and I do feel like, you know, there is something going on right now about plastic, which is, you know, no mas. I mean, people are fed up with what they're seeing, what they're hearing, micro micro particles of plastic in the, every fish you eat. Yeah. If it's pelagic or, you know, and... Uh, it's in the food. It's in the, yeah, people it's in are the eating plastic Absolutely. into their bodies. Yeah, I mean, mostly it's inert, but still... The idea of it is, uh, you know, anathema. And so I do think there's something move, There's something moving finally on plastic rather than, oh, recycling is going to take care of it. I don't have to worry. It's like, uh-uh, it's not taking care of it anyway. And so I do feel like we're going to see a real revolt against plastic finally. And I think people, the plastic industry thought it, came earlier, was going to come earlier, and somehow they're advertising and this and that, you know, all uh, sort of overrode that and it went away. But this time it's not going to go away because of what's happening in the oceans. It's not going to go away. (laughs) And just the beaches, look at the beaches. and It's not going to go away at all. And I think think that, I think the more we educate, and that's the reason why I wanted to talk about that, because no one even knows that information. You know, like I sat at many dinner tables I've, you know, spoken with many people and I talked to them about plastic and it's like, they're like, but the recycling is taking care of it. And, and so I'm so glad that we had a chance to, to, to talk about that. Okay. I, Paul, I, I love you so much. So I hear there's words like passion and energy, but I wanted a, a word that's even better than that in terms of the totality in your purpose. Thank yeah. you. How can people get your book? It's, it's it's the first book ever proposed. No one's ever proposed any plan to reverse global warming. That's not, it's, not, it's the most comprehensive. It could be the most beautiful, most literate, most odd. Whatever it is, it is because it's the only one. The other thing, the, the book coming 2020 is called Regeneration, How to Create One Billion Jobs. And the thesis of that book is really until we create more jobs and people, we're, go- we're going to have a society where people don't feel valued and they're going to act it out. And our economic system right now is really about stealing the future and regeneration uh, is about healing it. And we can do both. And but one has really harmful effects and the other actually does something quite different. You know, we're the only species without full employment and all other 10 million species out there are busy every day and then they go to sleep or they're busy all night and they go to sleep during the day. Whatever it is they choose, but they're busy, they're active, they're engaged, they're in community too. And we have figured out a way to make people valueless, to tell them they have no value, no purpose, and they act it out. You would put them in prison, they become homeless, they become impoverished in such a, 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 a cruel and unusual way. Uh, and suffer 
the, the mental and health effects of poverty. And so regeneration is not just about regenerating land or soil or farms or wetlands or forests. It's about regenerating our well-being, our health, our society, our social structures, our cities, our habitats. And it's our solutions actually put together as processes and really adding one more factor in the analysis, which is work, which is that when we implement the solutions that are, well, I shouldn't say implement, when we continue to scale the solutions that are in drawdown, we find that they're huge, huge job creators, you know. And why not? Why wouldn't taking care of this beautiful planet and making it more productive and, and you know, less toxic or non-toxic, really, you know, the water's pure, the ocean's abundant, the farmland's productive, uh, the city's beautiful, imaginative, the school's green, the food pure and nutritious. Why wouldn't it take work? It does. And that's the best work there is. So that's what regeneration's about. But it's, it's again, like, draw down. It's science, it's facts, it's data, it's not woo-woo, not at all. I'm not, yeah, I'm not, I'm not interested at all. I'm not interested in fluffy bunny woo-woo nonsense no. on any level. No, and so that's what we're about right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and all my listeners, they all know that I'm not into all that. It's got to be like, this is how it is, this is what's going on, this is how we This is how we fix it. There's a funny phrase at, at Drawdown, we had... Uh, one actually, there's in the in when you turn the book, or open up the first page, you see this beautiful uh, Kenyan girl. She's like I don't know, eleven or twelve. A friend of mine took the photograph, Chris Jordan. We always knew that that that's what we were about. You know, that's who we were serving, and it continues to this day. You know. So, are you on any social media? You know, I I I, I see everything. We have a a media report that comes to us every day. So I see all, what's going on out there on social media. It's just that I don't really have time. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time. And I you know, have to deal with it. I take, it takes a lot of time. And either, so a lot of people have surrogates who do it for you, you know, and... I won't let anyone do it for me. No, don't do it because then it doesn't mean anything, you know. And so, and you have to keep posting and you have to... Get, I engage with orders. every single person. Like if I get like a hundred comments... I go, I take time of my day and I read every single person's comment so that they know that they, I love them. I care about them. I see them. I honor them. I value them and that right. they have a voice to the tribe. And I want to learn from them. And I know what it's like to reach out and have somebody just ignore you or blow you off. And it's like a terrible feeling. I agree. Yeah. Thank you so much. much love. Thank being. you. Absolutely an honor. So tribe, I just want to say to take action, the call of action, to recognize that you are powerful, you are intelligent, you are a genius, you are smart, you can see through any types of obstacle. You have so much ability to be able to create the change that is necessary for yourself, for your family, for your friends, and here on earth. And I word you up in knowing the truth of who you are and that there is nothing or no one that can say anything against it because you are amazing. And I'm so happy that you, you joined us today on Ancient Wisdom Today podcast. And I want you to know there's going to be amazing, more amazing shows. Please check out everything that Paul is talking about. 
Go get his book. Go check him out on Twitter. Ask him the questions, you know, so you can educate yourself more because it's really about education, family. It's about education, education, sharing, conversation, and community. And really building upon that source is really going to allow us to thrive on planet Earth. So until next time, you can check me out on Instagram. And just remember, you are wonderful. Always celebrate you. Always honor you. Always value you. Until the next show. Love you. Bye.